0: All right, welcome back to our series of studies through the book of Esther. Tonight, I want to be teaching from um, chapter 3, verses 5, 6, and 7. But before we get started, I do want to do just a quick review of what we studied together last time. In that study, which was through uh, verses 2, 3, and 4, we saw Mordecai. Stand up to Haman in a way that no one else in Persia did, no one else in Persia was willing to do. and this is because Mordecai being a Jew and Haman being a, a descendant of an Amalekite king, Mordecai just had a, a an inbred, a natural and really a very understandable dislike for Haman. But what we studied is that he had an even greater force driving his willingness to stand up to Haman the way he did. And that was his total devotion to the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is really just a a true lesson, a good lesson for all of God's people to stand firm for the Lord in the midst of circumstances that are tempting us, really constantly tempting us, to compromise. Now, in our study, in tonight's study of verses 5, 6, and 7, we're going to learn uh, still more about Haman. We're going to look at and uncover some or what I consider to be like remarkable similarities between Haman and the king. We'll also see the developing ways in which he, Haman, fits into the overall story of the book of Esther. And if we look closely, which I hope to do tonight, we'll see the Lord at work behind the scenes in many, if not all, of the details. So if you want to join me in the book of Esther, chapter 3, let's read together verses 5, 6, and 7, and then we'll do a, a verse-by-verse study. Esther chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. It says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, In the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur—that that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Okay, so verse 5 opens with what I would consider to be an easily overlooked aspect of Haman's character. The wording here indicates that up until the, um, the king's officials who serve him at the king's gate, up until they told Haman that Mordecai was transgressing the king's command, and they did that back in verse 4, which we studied last time, but up until that time, Haman didn't even notice Mordecai's lack of bowing down, and paying homage to him. it's it's just an interesting fact. It's it's classic behavior typical of a narcissist. Haman is so self-absorbed that he pays no attention to individuals around him. You know, I I imagine him walking around through the king's court, walking to and fro, back and forth through the king's court. All he saw were the groups of people, the masses bowing down to him as he would walk by. It's just interesting to note how those who focus so much upon themselves, they're so focused on themselves that they rarely, if ever, pay any attention at all to details of those around them. I mean, Haman didn't notice. He didn't even see the one lowly individual who didn't bow down to him. But once he was made aware of it, once they told him, it's all he could see he couldn't see anything else. This is a character flaw. And we're going to see this character flaw in Haman throughout the story. In fact, it's a key element of how the Lord works and achieves his purpose, the Lord's purpose in this story. You see, the Lord quite often displays his sovereignty and his providence through the strengths and the weaknesses of individuals. Those who we may view as troublesome or even irritating individuals in our lives. And I know that we all have those individuals in our lives. But these individuals, they're, they're quite often instruments of the Lord's who he has chosen and who he has placed in our lives specifically to bring about needed change and growth in our lives. Let's, um, I want to, I want to fast forward just for a moment, a little bit in the story. Uh, I want to read from Esther chapter five, beginning in verse nine, excuse me, just to, um, to to take a quick look at this character flaw I'm describing in Haman. I'm not going to to teach on this passage. I just want to touch on it here, and and we'll fully study it when we get to it in our series. But uh, Esther chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, it says, And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home. And he sent, and he brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. And now verse 13 he says, "Yet, all this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate." Now, here we have a man who he, 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 he appears to have everything. He's got everything. He even recounts all that he has. He has good friends. He has a a wonderful wife. He has many children. He has riches. He has promotions above all the other court officials. And he has the attention of the queen. But in his mind, all of this is worthless. It's meaningless to him. I mean, how sad is that? He has what what most of us would view as this guy. He's got it all. Yet he has no joy in his life about this. He has has no contentment. He's discontent in all that he has. And he certainly has no gratitude. Has no thankfulness for what he has only thing that matters to him is this one man, Mordecai, who won't bow down and pay him homage. You know, I mean, I wonder was, was Mordecai and his respect was, was it that important to Haman? Was it Mordecai and his respect? I wonder if Haman would have been happy if this was all reversed. You know, if if he had nothing that he described, but he had Mordecai's honor and respect, I wonder if he would have been happy or content. That's a rhetorical question. No, he wouldn't have been. That's the point. Uh, uh, unless he had everything that he wanted, he was discontent. Discontentment is a, it's a dangerous and sometimes very subtle tactic of the enemy. You know, even for us as believers, Satan feeds us excuses and justification for discontentment. Things like, this is not an exhaustive list, but just thoughts like this. Hey, there's nothing wrong with having desires, is there? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to do more than I am currently able to do, to see more than I've seen, or to be more than I am. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? Well, no, but there is if it leads us to discontentment. You know, we live <clears throat> at a time in history and in a location, I mean, in this country, basically, where we are all, and I've, I've, I've done this before, I don't think I'm doing it right here, I don't think that I'm overstating this, but really, we are all saturated with wealth and blessing in this country. So much so that, that I think that we're somewhat we're conditioned to the point of not at least not fully recognizing it. You know, I have I've heard people, I mean I've personally heard people speak this way. People who own a home, own a car, who have food to eat, who have clothes to wear, who have a job and even As if some of these are luxuries, but they even have some luxuries in their life. I've seen, I've I've heard people in that category of life describe themselves as living in poverty. I think that's sad. I think that's sad. And it's all because they have their eyes focused on what they don't have and what they want rather than on what they do have, the blessings that God has given them. I think that we need to pay close attention to our own perspective on our lives. We need to fill our lives, our hearts, our thoughts with thanksgiving to God for all that we have. For the, and again, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm overstating this, for the innumerable blessings that he has lavished upon us. I think everyone here tonight and, 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 you know, most believers, I'll say at very least in this, in this country, he has lavished us with blessings. I think that we need to remind ourselves of that, keep ourselves uh, properly oriented there. Doing so, I believe, helps to keep discontentment at bay. And when we do feel the pangs of discontentment, I think that we all do. I mean, I can, I'll speak for myself. I do. Okay? When we feel the pangs of discontentment, if you experience even just moments of feeling discontent, I say, cry out to the Lord for forgiveness and for grace to turn away from that discontentment. Don't give in to it. Don't give in to discontentment. Don't accept being discontent. Haman was. Haman was discontent. And that discontentment led him to a response to Mordecai's actions, or actually, I guess, lack of actions in this case. The text tells us that Haman was filled with fury, filled with fury. Uh, The original uh, Hebrew phrase translates literally this way, rage filled Haman. This is the, the same Hebrew word that was translated to anger to describe the king's response to Vashti. Back in chapter 1, verse 12, which reads, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, when we studied that verse, I drew to your attention at that time just how self-absorbed the king is, or was, he was not interested at all as to why the queen refused to come at his command. From his perspective, her thoughts, her feelings, her opinions, they carried absolutely no value at all. He just simply didn't care. The only thing that mattered to the king was getting what he wanted at that moment. The description used here, it's, it's, it's very telling of what anger does when it's left unchecked in a person's heart. The text, it says that his anger burned within him. Now, the word burned, it literally means to blaze or to be consumed with by fire. Okay. So the same Hebrew word elsewhere in scripture is translated to the English word purge. So in this, in in this verse or in this passage, in the case of King Ahasuerus, his anger, it totally consumed or it completely purged from him all rational thought, all care and concern for Vashti as a fellow human being, much less as his wife. All he could think about, the only person that he considered or cared about at that moment in time, the only one that he could see was himself. And this is the same effect Haman's anger had on him. I don't think that the use of the same word here uh, describing Haman's response to Mordecai is coincidence or, or uncon, uh, uh, un, uh, unconnected, disconnected. We're seeing in Haman a heart perspective, a character trait that is very similar. I said character trait. Maybe it's a, it's a character flaw that's very similar to the king. When Vashti refused to come at the king's command, he didn't deal with the situation as a husband-to-wife dispute, which is really what it was. What he did was he escalated, he exaggerated or amplified the situation to an empire level, an empire-affecting situation. If you remember, he was was fed a lie by his attendants that Vashti had not just done wrong against him, against the king, but because of what she had done against the king, they told him that all the women throughout the entire empire would look at their husbands with contempt. Well, and... uh, we, we fully developed that when we, when we studied that, that verse, but this was just not the case. Vashti's disobedience to the king, whether it was right or wrong for her to do it, but her disobedience to the king, it just simply would not have had the widespread impact that the king's attendants convinced him that it would. But his self-absorption, so greatly influenced him, so greatly influenced his perception that he ended up doing what he did. Now, we see and we will continue to see as we continue through the series, Haman's rage and anger and how he responds to it. He's filled with fury why simply because Mordecai is a righteous man and he refuses to participate and embrace unrighteous acts. Even when the law of the land is requiring it of him, even when breaking that law <clears throat> by refusing to participate in this unrighteousness, even when doing that will cost him in this case, potentially his 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 own life. And we established in, in our last study that Mordecai's refusal to bow down and pay homage to Haman had much to do with this the long standing conflict, the animosity between Israel and the Amalekites. But that an even greater force was driving Mordecai, and that greater force was his total devotion to the Lord. Now, because of this, Haman's persecution of Mordecai and his people most likely didn't surprise him, didn't surprise Mordecai. If it did, it probably shouldn't have. In the same way, we should never be surprised or caught off guard when the world is enraged by our righteous behavior um, and and by our faithfulness to the Lord. We should never be surprised when the world persecutes us. Jesus taught this this very principle to his disciples. Uh, why don't you join me in the Gospel of John chapter 15? Let me read verses 18 through 21. John 15 18 through 21, the Lord Jesus speaking. He says, speaking to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The world hates us. The world hates us, and it's because the world hates the Lord. The world hates us because we are of the Lord. This fact shouldn't surprise us. It should not catch us off guard. Jesus taught us to expect it, to anticipate it. He taught us, basically, it comes with the territory. In fact, we should we should take a serious look at our faith. We should take a serious look at our stand for the Lord if the world doesn't hate us. If the, Lord, uh, if the world praises us, if the world gets along with us, and if we get along with the world, that should be a red flag for us. We should examine ourselves if that's the case. We should anticipate, expect animosity from the world. Haman's anger and hatred of Mordecai was because he was a Jew. We've established this. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of speculation here, but I think this is safe speculation. Had a non-Jew done the same thing, had a non-Jew refused to bow down and pay homage to Haman. He probably would have been upset, and he, he might have even sought retribution against that individual. But I'm speculating that he most likely would not have been filled with anger, filled with fury, and gone to the extremes that he did toward Haman. He most likely, I think, that he would have been much more tolerant. And we see this in the world today. Unbelievers are, generally speaking, are far more tolerant of other unbelievers non-Christians, when they do say or believe things differently. They have a lot of tolerance for one another, but there seems to be zero tolerance when it comes to believers and to matters pertaining to God's Word. The world constantly demands that we, God's people, that we bow down to its beliefs to its standards, and to its practices. And when we don't, what happens? The world always reacts in rage. They are enraged. We should pattern ourselves after, after Mordecai, after his brave allegiance to the Lord. And we should always stand firm for the Lord against a raging world. And we should never be surprised. We should never be surprised by the world's anger or that the world is ready, willing, and able to go to extreme measures to quiet us and to suppress us. And in certain circumstances, the world even demands that we approve of and celebrate their perverse beliefs. This shouldn't surprise us. See, I think that by doing that, by so doing what they're trying to do, what, they're trying their very best to annihilate us, God's people. They're trying to rid the world of us. Why? Because we're God's people. That's why. This is exactly what Haman does. His anger is so consuming. It's so all-consuming. He's so self-absorbed and he's so filled with fury. Listen in verse six to what he does or what he's planning to do, what he wants to do. Verse six says, but he disdained To lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, I want to spend just a moment and take a look at this word disdain. It means to express strong negative connotations, to scorn or despise the idea of doing something. I want to read a couple other translations, how how they have stated this same verse. Um, He thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He despised in his eyes to send forth his hand against Mordecai alone. He considered it beneath his dignity to kill Mordecai alone. He scorned the idea of killing Mordecai alone, and he thought it beneath him merely to get rid of Mordecai alone. You see, Haman's anger burned within him to such an extent that for him to see Mordecai submit and comply with the king's command or to see Mordecai alone punished for his past insubordination, even to the point of death, it just wouldn't satisfy him. It wouldn't satisfy his rage. Even if, if, if Mordecai was executed because he hadn't been bowing down and paying homage, that wasn't enough. For uh, Haman. The fact that Mordecai was a Jew and was refusing to bow down, it enraged Haman. There's an idiom that um, I'm pretty sure that we're all familiar with. It goes like this. He was so angry, he saw red. Have you ever heard that before? Okay, what this means is that that, that, a, that a person is so angry that everything he sees is filtered by his anger. You know, the color red often represents uh, or symbolizes anger. So it it's like, it's like we're taking a, 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 a pair of glasses like this that have red lenses and putting them on. What happens if you do that? Everything that you look at, everything that you see is going to be red, right? That's what this idiom means, that, that, that when a person is so angry, everything that they see enrages them. Everything. I think that we can safely say that Haman was so angry that he saw red. <laughs> he was driven by rage, And his rage would only be satisfied by the widespread murder, the genocide of all the Jews, all of Mordecai's people throughout the empire, simply because they were Jews. So we see just as the king, because of his anger, <clears throat> was unable to distinguish between a personal offense and a genuine threat to the empire when that was when Vashti refused to come uh, to his feast at his command. Say, uh, Haman is <clears throat> similarly here so deeply influenced by his anger, so driven by his hatred that he takes Mordecai's refusal to bow down and pay homage to him as justification to murder all the Jews within the empire. Let's go on to verse seven now. It says, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is they cast lots before Haman day after day and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar." So here, now, in the midst of his rage, I would anticipate immediate action from Haman, immediate action in destroying the Jews throughout the empire. But here he does something, I, I, I saw it as somewhat unexpected. He he gathers a group of cohorts. Now the 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 text isn't isn't explicit as far as um, uh, who this group uh, consisted. Uh, possibly it was the king's servants who serve at the gate. You know those who informed uh, Haman of Mordecai's actions. Uh, I read in a couple of different commentaries. Uh, where they suggested that this was a group of astrologers that he he got together um, You know really who comprised the group is not nearly as important as what they did The text tell, tells us that they cast Per that is they cast lots and I think We're, we're probably all pretty familiar with what that means. It's 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 similar like in our culture to to rolling dice Okay um, and there are different types of lots described or referenced uh, throughout Scripture. Uh, the most common lots used in Persia at that time was uh, uh, it's described as a clay cube with different symbols on each side. So this was most likely the form of lots used in this reference. It was also common practice within the Persian Empire that when decisions needed to be made, they would cast lots as a, as a means of making decisions or, or choosing among uh, different possibilities. Um, really, the, the Eastern people in those days, they, they took few important steps Uh, without in one way or another consulting, you know, the, the stars or, or looking to omens that is signs from their gods, false gods to, to guide them and, and direct them. So, I mean, in this case, the purpose for the casting of lots, it was to determine the day for the destruction of the Jews throughout the Persian empire. That was Haman's um, uh, purpose in doing this, to determine that day. This was done privately, and it was done with Haman. And it was done prior to Haman approaching the king with his plan to annihilate the Jews. You see, Haman, Haman wanted to be sure that everything was in order. As much as his anger burned within him, as much as he wanted to destroy the people of Mordecai, he wanted to make sure that his plan would succeed. And he was, I've I've pretty much described him, him as being irrational at this point. Well, he was rational enough to do all that he could do to ensure the success of his plan. I think that by by casting lots, Haman was, from his twisted perspective, he was enlisting the support of his false gods. Now, the text also establishes for us two important dates in the story. One, the date on which the lots were cast. The first month, which is the month of Nisan. The second is the date on which the lots fell. The twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Now, the wording in this in our English translation might give the impression to some that lots were cast each day or every day. Uh, day by day, and every month, month by month, from the first month until the 12th month. When we get to verse 12, and again, we'll we'll fully develop it then, but when we get there, what we're going to see is that there are three key events that take place within this first month, the month of Nisan. Those three events are this— Haman established the date that he's going to carry out this evil plan of his. Two, he spoke to the king and convinced him to approve this plan. And three, the edict was written that would be sent throughout the entire empire. All three of these happened in that first month. Okay. Now the text... Now I'm back in verse seven. Okay. The text doesn't lay out all the details for us here, but in all likelihood in the course of one day, one day in this, the first month, here's what happened. They systematically checked each day of each month by casting lots to see if the lot would fall on that day. Okay. So it was something like this. Okay. We're going to, you know, the, the first of the month, we're going to cast lots. Did the lot fall on that day? No, it didn't. Okay. Now we're going to cast lot, cast the lot for the second day of the month. Did it fall on that day? No, it didn't third day, fourth day. So they, they systematically checked each day. They just kept checking until the lot would fall on a day. Okay. So they continued doing that until the lot fell on a particular or specific day. And it was a day in the 12th month. So they designated that day to be the day for the extermination of the Jewish people, because that was the day that the lot fell on. Okay. I hope that I didn't confuse everybody more than explain this. But this is a detail that I think is important. It's important in order for us to consider, to see, and to understand the Lord's involvement in the unfolding of this story down to the minutest detail. Okay, some some might see the casting of lots, or like I said, in our culture, the tossing of the dice. Um, Some might see that as as relying on the cosmic forces of the universe. Some might see it as just pure chance, just random chance, or even as the Persians believed the power of their false gods. We know that none of those beliefs are true or accurate. We know that because there is only one true God the God of Israel. And he alone actually has the power to control the lot. Let me read to you from Proverbs 16, verse 33. It teaches us this reality. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. So we can be confident in this Verse in this passage in Esther, we can be confident that it was the Lord who determined what day and what month Haman would establish as the day he would launch his attack on God's people. It was all part of God's plan that there would be this delay of almost one full year from the first month to the 12th month. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting to me to consider what Haman's perspective might have been on the outcome of the lot on this delay. You know, was he disappointed that he was going to have to wait a year, almost a year? It seems, as I said before, it seems to me that, that he would have wanted to act immediately to satisfy that uh, that, that anger and that, that rage, and possibly to, to catch the Jews off guard, just strike. But on the other hand, these uh, about approximately 11 months of waiting might have given him time to, to kind of nurse his grudge and anticipate his revenge on Mordecai. You know how anticipation builds what you're waiting for, works the same way with anger and revenge. And he might have enjoyed watching the Jews for all of this time live in fear and anxiety, knowing that he was in control of their impending doom. But really, regardless of Haman's perspective on the delay, what we know What we should pay attention to is that it was God's purpose and God's plan. You see, there was much to be done, much, there was much that needed to be accomplished in God's plan before Haman's act was to be initiated. God sovereignly chose to work through Haman's superstition, through his trust in the lot to establish not Haman's perfect day, not Haman's perfect hour to launch his deadly assault on God's people, but God's perfect day. So between now and the end of our story, what's Haman gonna be doing? Well, he's going to be counting the days, and he's going to be working out all of his own plans for his big day of seeing all of God's people annihilated in one fell swoop. But what we will see, as we continue through the series of studies here, what we will see is all of the details of God's plan. God's plan of salvation for his people will be seeing that unfold in his perfect way, and in his perfect timing, all to accomplish his perfect will. Now, Haman, of course, had no idea that his actions were not serving his own purposes at all. He thought he was was doing a great job of serving himself and making sure that everything was going to work out just as he wanted it to. He thought that by leaving to the lot the decision of the day of annihilating God's people, that his success would be ensured. In reality, we probably all know the story, right? And and we will see it unfold. But in reality, what he did was he set in motion God's perfect plan that would ultimately seal Haman's own destruction and annihilate his own family. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this illustration of how the world hates us because it hates you. Thank you for reminding us that the more that we reflect you, the more the world will hate us. I pray, Father, that you will keep us ever aware that the world is at enmity with you in everything. That they're constantly demanding that we bow down to them, bow down to their beliefs, their standards, their practices, that they are demanding that we approve and even applaud their perverse behavior and their perverse beliefs. Father, I pray that you will keep us on guard and that we will never be surprised by the world's reaction or reactions to us. Please, Father, give us the grace to pattern ourselves after Mordecai, after his brave allegiance to you, and help us to always stand firm for you against the world, against a raging world. Thank you, Father, and amen.